Welcome to episode number 9 of Cayman Podcast. This is our second episode after we took a short break from recording and came back for a couple of COVID-19 specific episodes. As we announced in our previous episode, today we have Zeynep Oz with us and we will talk about her work on political geology of oil in Turkey and we will also talk about COVID-19 pandemic with a perspective of political ecology. Zeynep Oz is a Mellon postdoctoral fellow in environmental humanities with a joint appointment in the Department of Anthropology at Northwestern University. She received her PhD in cultural anthropology from Graduate Center, the City University of New York in 2019, with her dissertation, Sedimenting Territory, a political geology of oil, earth, and spatial politics in Turkey. Located at the intersection of environmental anthropology, geography, and science and technology studies, SDS, her current book project examines how oil, petroleum geology, and energy infrastructures have mediated the relations between earthly and sociopolitical formations in Turkey. By analyzing the making and unmaking of territorial imaginaries and formations, especially in relation to Turkey's Kurdish-populated Southeast, Zeynep's work offers an alternative genealogy of the Kurdish question from the perspective of energy, resources, and earth politics. Welcome to the podcast, Zeynep. Hi, Deniz. I'm glad to be here. It's wonderful to have you on. When the question of oil in Turkey and the Kurdish question come up together in daily conversations, they immediately turn into conspiracy theories. So I think you're really courageous to tackle these two very controversial topics from a scholarly perspective. But precisely because you examine the two together, you have this historically and ethnographically unique analysis, and each topic sheds new light on the other through your focus on the relations between the material, environmental, historical and political aspects of both questions. In this podcast, I usually start by asking this question, and I will do the same for you. Could you tell us how did you decide to work on this topic? So growing up in Turkey, I imagine you experienced similar things. I couldn't help witnessing the contradictions of this post-imperial nation state and the ongoing patterns of everyday state violence in Turkey. So I became invested in understanding the parameters of the Kurdish question in Turkey. And I, I was and I still am actually deeply committed to left international politics uh, and planetary politics. Two questions about being and living in common uh, or composing a common planet based on non-liberal uh, radical emancipatory principles of freedom. So when I started my PhD in cultural anthropology, I wanted to tackle the Kurdish question through these frameworks I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to take seriously the predicament of the Republic of Turkey, especially its fraught place in the world system or the unequal historical structures it's been situated in, like take that very seriously. So I wanted to understand both the violence embedded in the making of the Turkish nation state, but also do justice to the historical experiences, imaginaries, and labor of many political actors who were committed to the Republican project uh, with all the contradictions and violence and unevenness it it contained. Um, So oil's story in Turkey kind of provided that vantage point 
uh, for me. Uh, and as you know, oil has been this key resource uh, that is deeply connected to ideologies of progress, to development, modernity, and futurity everywhere around the world. So in a sense, uh, at first, I thought oil story in Turkey was no different from that. Early Turkish engineers and politicians were deeply committed to these ideals, mm -hmm. obviously, uh, while as they explored oil. And they put so much physical and emotional or anticipatory labor into finding oil because there was oil uh, right near Turkey's borders, the New Republic's borders, to the prospect of discovering oil. But as I started my research, I, I realized that the Turkish case does not entirely resemble the mainstream narratives about oil. And uh, this has, I think, has to do with two distinctive features of oil in Turkey. The first one has to do with oil's actual presence or absence in Turkey, uh, because it is surrounded by these oil-rich neighbors, right, uh, in the Middle East. But it has actually very limited uh, reserves of its own. For instance, today, oil production in Turkey is around 60,000 barrels per day, and it supplies only 7% of its domestic oil need. And you can compare this to, to Iran and Iraq, for instance, they produce up to 4 million barrels uh, a day. So oil in Turkey has always had this elusive presence. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something I, I start my uh, book with. Um, Which and is very, very much in line with the conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. that, <laughs> exactly. Um, it's the material uh, representation of non-existent oil mm -hmm. that produces. Mm -hmm. Is there a conspiracy going on? Like uh, <laughs> Iran has so much oil, why don't we? Like, is there something else going on? And so moving from these absences, the, the space between absence and presence, which I talk about as being phantomatic in a way, like ghostly, but I found out that absences often bring about unexpected things into being. Uh, and I'll come back to this. So the second distinctive feature of oil has to do with where Turkey's tiny oil... So, yeah, I have a cat here. <laughs> By the way, yeah, we forgot to introduce our, our second guest here, Luna, um, <laughs> as she likes to introduce herself to. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, she has contributions, and we are, we are here precisely talking about human and non-human yeah, interactions, yeah. so it's very... Uh, appropriate. Oh, you'll come, you'll come back to Luna and, and her desires yeah. and imaginaries <laughs> very <True>. soon. <laughs> but let's continue for mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was very rude of me not to introduce <laughs> her at the beginning. Thank you, Denise. <laughs> so the second feature, the distinctive feature of oil in Turkey has to do with where Turkey's tiny oil deposits have been found in the towns of, uh, southeastern towns of Batman, Diyarbakir, Siirt, Mardin and Nusaybin. So basically, uh, they are found in the uh, Kurdish regions that arguably offer as a case of late modern colonial occupation, right? Mm -hmm. So the other side of the progress and industrial development saturated story of oil's anticipation in Turkey is a story that is deeply violent and uneven. So this two-faced case of oil in Turkey in a way, allowed me to explore this unique mix of notions of petromodernity and resource nationalism uh, on the one hand, and colonial and territorial politics in Turkey's Kurdish regions, Turkey's Kurdistan, Northern Kurdistan, uh, on the other. So in a way, uh, for me, oil captured uh, the entanglement of Turkey's globally uneven position, 
as well as the forms of spatial and economic unevenness within its own territories. So multiple levels of post-colon. Mm-hmm. And, and very contradictory. And, and the actors who are in the oil world embody that. And I, and I think looking at contradictory formations are very, very productive for, for social environmental theory. And in my book project, I make this argument, despite or actually precisely because of its elusive presence, oil has been central to political projects and imaginaries in Turkey, uh, often contradictory ones, uh, from developmentalist politics early on to insurgency movements in the 70s and 80s and populist authoritarianisms in, in contemporary Turkey, which are, to go back to your uh, point about conspiracy theories, often fuel these kinds of authoritarian politics uh, in contemporary right. Turkey, right. along with neo-Ottomanisms. Oil has been, I think, both a phantom-like medium that political actors, engineers, and workers have desired, and a figure through which various hegemonic and anti-hegemonic political imaginaries have been exercised, including the Kurdish political movement. Oil became a medium through which Kurdish political actors diagnosed and criticized historical structures of inequality and violence in Turkey. Uh, we can see that in the 70s and 80s, where most, mostly the literature has been around these narratives of uh, silence and absence of Kurdish political action. But actually, uh, when you uh, look at the history, certain claims and uh, diagnoses were voiced through um, engagements with oil and resources in, in Kurdistan. So oil basically helped or enabled these actor actors to conjure up anti-hegemonic visions of autonomy, emancipation, and political alternative political futures. So this part constitutes the political anthropology aspect of my project. Uh, there is also an environmental humanities concern in my work. So this other motivation came from my interest in climate change and the current planetary ecological crisis we are facing. Um, so one question for me uh, was this. Is there a connection between uh, political formations, political ideologies, uh, and so on, and the kinds of resources we uh, desire, we explore, and use. Earlier I said oil helped Kurdish actors conjure up anti-hegemonic visions of uh, emancipation. And in my book project, I also argued that neither the liberation of the oppressed people, including Kurds, nor a planetary project can be separated from a radical rethinking of our relationship with oil or fossil fuels specifically, and nature and matter uh, generally. With COVID-19, the question of ecology and its relationship with politics and economy is brought once more to the global agenda, which is very much in line with the way that you do your work. Though, unfortunately, with quite problematic discourses like nature's taking revenge mm -hmm. or humans withdrew from the scene and nature is renewing itself... Mm -hmm as if there were an undivided and homogenous humanity and a nature removed from them, as if there were no class, no race or gender distinctions, no political institutions, etc. I think here is where environmental humanities becomes a crucial perspective that could turn the, the, these discourses around. Because environmental humanities scholars have been criticizing these simplistic and harmful assumptions, and they have been really useful in rethinking the relationship of nature and humans. 
So how can those insights help us understand the COVID-19 pandemic better? Well, thanks, Dennis. This is a great question. And I also want to flag that one of the very false assumptions about the pandemic is that this virus is an Asian problem, right? Right. As if the conditions of modern farming and agribusiness and capitalism in China are somehow disconnected from the realities in the U.S., so this is another another uh, narrative we have to uh, counter, right? Mm-hmm. Because the emergence of the virus, COVID-19, is actually a product of a multiplicity of factors and entangled multi-layered histories. And we need to tackle, I think, these structures of uh, disease emergence. In a way, we see that economic globalization and global agrocapitalism are the driver of disease evolution in the case of COVID-19. Also, Factors such as factory farming, wetland destruction have been uh, key to the emergence of this virus. Another factor has to do with the precarious working conditions of world population that lack health insurance. Forest destruction is another one. It eliminates, for instance, the previously held barriers between human populations and the viruses that are endemic to certain animals. So what both the emergence of the virus itself as an epidemic, and what transformed it into a global pandemic, which is a tautology, I think, mm-hmm. uh, has to do with these uh, historical connections that right. capitalism has forged, right? They allowed a virus to evolve into a global deadly disease, targeting a largely vulnerable, poor world population that lives in densely urban environments with weak public health infrastructures that have gone through years and years of austerity measures. Urban theorist and environmental historian Mike Davis makes uh, some of these points in his new book too, and I I really recommend everyone to read it. So the pandemic is a result of the kinds of intimate, yet extremely uneven structures of connectivity. It is also a result of ecological, ecological and biological disruption that global capitalism has created in the past few hundred years. And what is striking to me is that the response to the pandemic has been mostly revolving around measures of containment and or disconnection uh, with narratives about the virus as enemy or war against the virus that we are so familiar with uh, thanks to Trump's daily press conferences in the past months. The response has also been extremely militarized, right? Right. And this is also obviously pretty consistent with Trump's um, anti-globalist and xenophobic policy. So in a way, what is, I think, striking is uh, we are responding to a disease that is the result of the entangled histories of global capitalism with the very same measures that are intended to protect or profit capitalism. I'm talking about all the narratives about the importance of economy and proposals to sacrifice vulnerable populations uh, to the pandemic for the sake of it, for instance. And the discourse, as you mentioned in your question, like nature taking its revenge and so on, tend to assume that humans and social and political worlds are separate from the natural world or the environment. These are also uh, misguided, right? Um, What COVID-19 pandemic shows us is precisely that we are all entangled 
humans, animals, microbes, viruses. And these entanglements are all obviously are not like these happy, nice connections where everyone's like dancing happily. They're <laughs> violent, they're deadly, they're lethal. Right. And th these the kinds of suffering that are caused by these entanglements are kind of fueled by the structures of capitalism. And that's another uh, topic I'll, I want to touch on. But the, the, the gist of the story is that human animals are not removed from nature, have never been removed from nature, and we are constantly shaping nature or the environment while it has also been shaping us in return. So one way of looking at this uh, is through this ecological perspective that we do live in a big planetary system, an open yet very fragile system. Right. We know it's fragile right now. And viruses have also been a part of it. COVID-19 is a symptom of this ecology of relations uh, that have been aggravated by uh, global capitalism in the past centuries, two centuries. Right. So the perspectives you suggest helps us rethink the implications of life politics. And these theoretical approaches urge us to reconsider the relationship between human and non-humans. Could you expand on the concepts of biopower and geopower as you use them in your work? And how do these concepts and the insights of environmental anthropology or political ecology challenge or co contribute to the existing perspectives on energy and climate change? Also, of course, I'm asking about your work in particular mm -hmm. and your contribution. Mm -hmm. So in the lectures of... Uh... Michel Foucault, the, the French philosopher, biopower is referred as the domain of life, uh, in which power has asserted its control. So as to decide who to let die, who to make live, and so on. But these decisions are not easy decisions. They often operate nowadays, and they used to, through racialized and sexualized uh, structures that value certain human lives and non-human lives over others. We can see this in the construction of the nation states as well, through their borders, for instance, uh, where refugees versus citizens stand in very different valuations. And as I mentioned earlier, we witnessed a biopower moment very recently, following the pandemic, when the governor of Texas suggested that we should sacrifice the vulnerable population, the elderly, the poor, etc., for the sake of the economy. At which he recklessly and shamelessly included himself to be among the elderly, therefore mm -hmm. immunocompromised, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. although he has access to probably the best health care that is offered in the world. Yeah, and well, ignoring class is a signature move of the Republicans, so mm -hmm. I guess that wasn't very unexpected. Very much. So there are a few scholars writing about geopower, and I argue along with them that biopower, or the hierarchical valuations of life, is actually linked to another form of power that has to do with the distinctions between life and non-life. This is geopower. And geopower is about the ways in which we deem certain things as lifeless, non-living, as dead matter, uh, right. to quote Marx. Uh, these designations allow or legitimize a range of operations. Water, soil, fossils, trees are translated into the language of resources. Because things aren't resources uh, inherently, right? We make them resources. Right. Uh, the subsoil, the moon nowadays, the Arctic nowadays become extractable spaces. 
um, land is seen as something to be used, occupied, and appropriated. And, and we see culminations of these in, in many indigenous uh, struggles against resource extraction, for instance. And when left empty, it is seen as a waste of mm-hmm. resources. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So in a way, only by casting earth as non-living, not dead, non-living, and thus open to human appropriation, territorialization, and capitalization. So like three things I think that are very important. Um, living forms are subjected to similar practices of exclusion and violence as well. So this kind of uh, uh, establishes the relationship between biopower and geopower. In a way, biopower is only enabled uh, when geopower becomes a hegemonic and violent force. So I think a geopower perspective reveals the planetary ecological crisis we are facing, that this crisis and the pandemic are basically different sides of the same problem. And my work in Turkey's Kurdish regions speaks to these concerns intimately. To rephrase, uh, my work points toward rethinking the relations between the subsoil, petroleum, Kurdish people, the Turkish state, and territorial projects and political imaginaries that grew out of these relationships from a planetary, anti-capitalist, and economic uh, perspective, because I don't think these perspectives can be separated from each other. Which, though, have never been made to speak to each other mm-hmm. in current scholarship. Yes, and which, I think which is our, it's a difficult enterprise yeah. to connect these things together. Because these works are the, the, the kind of connections made between political power, coloniality uh, on the one hand and environmental politics and extraction on the other are usually practiced in the Northern American sphere, right. which is very relevant and super important. But I think we need to rethink these questions in the context of the Middle East, uh, which will benefit each other, right? So one key question I tackle in my book is whether it is possible to imagine emancipatory and anti-hegemonic futures that do not depend on the often violent logics of petromodernity and extractivism that have characterized the past century in and beyond Turkey. So let's connect this to the pandemic. I am suggesting that we should adopt an ecological and planetary perspective and highlight it. Instead of containment policies, sacrificial or immunity politics, instead of capitalist responses to a problem mostly created by global capitalist relations, those intricate and uneven relations have deeply impacted the relations between humans and non-human animals. And an ecological point of view will remind us uh, the inescapable relations that we found ourselves, that we cannot simply expel the virus from our homes. Metaphorically and literally, right? From our political body, from our nation, from our uh, state, from our homes, from our bodies. So we know that exclusion doesn't work in this context. It doesn't. Uh, but neither does like uh, the romantic idea of living together with the virus because right. the virus is deadly and lethal, right? So right. we have to actually find another way. This is not a happy story of multi-species entanglement. Right. The virus, I think, in this sense is both a relation and a symptom of a global system of inequality that has produced suffering for most of the peoples and beings involved in these relations. 
A planetary perspective, I think, can show us that these relations have also produced global ecological crises from climate change to mass extinctions. An ecological and planetary perspective towards the pandemic can help us develop responses that are attentive to the common planet we share with other beings and animals and humans, responses that are care-oriented instead of exclusion and immunity-oriented, and responses that aim to lessen the kinds of suffering that beings experience in this world, including the suffering of uh, animals. Unfortunately, we are coming close to the end of our time here. No. But before <laughs> before we close, I would like to hear more about your upcoming new projects. Mm -hmm. So I am currently developing two different new projects. The first one is called the Island to Come, Hydrocarbon Discoveries and Political Futures in Cyprus. So this project is, uh, as you might have noticed, is derived from my long-term interest in left internationalism and planetary politics mm -hmm. and resources and extraction at the same time. And as you also know, um, large hydrocarbon deposits, natural gas fields, have been discovered in the eastern Mediterranean recently. And in 2011, more were discovered in Cypriot waters. So for those who don't know the history of Cyprus, I'll give a brief summary. So Cyprus is an island composed of Turkish and Greek-speaking populations. And Turkey invaded Cyprus, northern Cyprus, in 1974. And since then, the island has been politically divided into the Republic of Cyprus, which is an EU member, internationally recognized, and the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, uh, which de facto controls the north and is not recognized internationally. So following the, these gas discoveries, uh, Turkey argued that Northern Cyprus has a right, sovereign right to these resources and expedited its seismic activities, its drilling activities in, in the uh, waters of Cyprus, in the Mediterranean. And this caused a huge geopolitical crisis. If you were following the news, that's on the agenda of uh, European Union countries. So again, going back to the question of oil, right, or fossil fuels, What I'm trying to understand is this. On the backdrop of these recent gas discoveries, how do Cypriots, including Greek and Turkish-speaking uh, residents, inhabitants of the island, are reimagining the island's political and environmental futures? Because when you look at the popular media coverage of the issue, uh, the issue is framed as such. Hydrocarbon prospects are driving... Uh, both peace and conflict in the region. So like there are all these um, headlines like oil, uh, uh, gas is found, it might bring peace. Gas is found, it's going to drive more geopolitical conflict. These are kind of environmentally determinist reactions that also take for granted the political future of Cyprus as a divided nation. Right. So this is carried out through a security-oriented perspective that valorizes national interests. This is the problem of geopolitics and international relations that we see in many places too. Uh, and these debates rarely explore what Cypriots, and, and by Cypriots I mean, again, both Turkish and Greek inhabitants of the entire island, envision for their future. What do they want with the, what do they want to do with the hydrocarbons under the seabed? What kinds of political and territorial visions do they entail? So here I am especially interested in this long, long history of internationalist and democratic movements in Cyprus. 
that have advocated for the unification of the island. So uh, in, this, in this project, I'm talking to uh, lots of pro-unification actors who want to basically form an island that has nothing to do with the EU or Turkey, uh, that is not based on uh, ethnic or linguistic divisions, but political principles. So once again, your political commitments to left politics and earth politics is driving your yeah, research. Yeah, and they, they converge. In many anthropologists' yes. works. And they converge perfectly in this case. There is a second project I want to talk about before we end this, if you have time. Yes. So the other project I started to work is called Lithospheric Politics. Uh, and it's an attempt to think about the entanglement of geology and sociopolitical worlds. But this time I want to explore these questions, uh, not through oil this time, uh, but by basically looking at other kinds of earth processes, such as, uh, or, or, or materials such as mountains, tectonic plates, the subsoil, and so on, to understand how states or other political actors use them to naturalize, for instance, political boundaries. Uh, and in return, I want to also think about how do these earthly forces shape, limit, and unsettle political formations. So uh, to finish, as part of this ongoing project, I wrote this article on the geopolitical life of caves in southeastern Turkey. Basically, these like limestone caves scattered around uh, the Tigris Valley near Hasan Cave. Right. Uh, and I traced how they became the locus of state power since the 1940s. And this not only provided a different kind of perspective on the Kurdish question, but also allows us to rethink how geopower has operated in Turkey and keeps operating in Turkey uh, in the aftermath of uh, the Ulusu Dam and the, the submergence of the uh, town of Hasanke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which has had a massive political mobilization around exactly mm -hmm. against the building of the mm -hmm. Sudan. So this will be published very soon in Political Geography Journal. Uh, and the second one, a part of, again, this project. Uh, so I'm writing a bunch of short essays or uh, articles, not a book uh, on this project, um, will be about tectonic collision and the making of Anatolia. So basically how political actors basically naturalized uh, Anatolia as the geo-natural home of the Turkish nation-state. And a short essay on this will be up on the Cultural Anthropology website in September as a part of the Theorizing the Contemporary series titled Geological Anthropology. And I am the editor of that, and there will be uh, 12 more articles on different geological forces and materials and you can read them all in September. And finally, I'm also writing a piece about the political history of mountains nowadays on Mount Judy and Mount Ararat wow. and thinking about political cosmologies uh, there. But let's keep that, uh, let's keep a surprise element there. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was wonderful to have this conversation with you, Zeynep. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. It was a pleasure, Dennis. Thank you for inviting me. For our listeners who are interested in a conversation about the pandemic from a political ecology perspective, Mekanda Adalet Dani had a wonderful webinar featuring six young academics from Turkey, including Zeynep Oz, entitled Salgında Adalet ve Politik Ekoloji. 
You can find the link for that webinar in our show notes. Also, if you would like to find out more about Zeynep Oz's work, you can find the link to her personal website, her academia webpage, her Northwestern webpages, since she's a, a joint appointment in anthropology and environmental humanities. And we will link any new article that has come out or is about to come out as they as we go along so check the show notes they're coming <laughs> it's wonderful again thank you so much for thank this you Dennis. thank you we will come back with more episodes keep following us